Now, as we're going to start looking at next time, and, and actually be two weeks, um, but we'll, we'll begin to look at the worldwide flood in Genesis 6 to 9. And this is the single greatest disaster in the history of the world. We would call it natural disasters. We understand God's behind this and, well, in all storms and everything. But it's so widespread, so catastrophic, the proportions are just so incredibly great that no other event in history even comes close. I mean, I googled this week just for curiosity the, the worst natural disasters just to see what some of the things that we know of in, in recorded human history that have happened. And there, are, there have been some catastrophic events. There were floods in China back in 1931 that estimated to have killed between one and four million people. Uh, there was an earthquake in China in the, in the 16th century that killed 830,000 people. A cyclone in Bangladesh that killed a half million people in 1970s. Remember that. Uh, more recent in 2010, we know of, an, of the earthquake in Haiti that killed, what, 316,000 people. Uh, and the, and, uh, the tsunami back in 2004, the earthquake and tsunami in Indonesian, uh, in the Indian Ocean, and, and killed so many people. But, and if you include famines in that, then the numbers are, are even much greater. The worst famine re- that we know of was the Great China Famine that killed 40 million people. 40 million people. But if we accept the biblical record, and we must, that then, then no list of worst disasters could possibly be complete without the number one spot being this worldwide flood that we find recorded here. Those other disasters were incredibly tragic. And yet they were local. And they were regional. But Genesis describes this vast flood that, that covers the entire earth. It, it, it's, it's so catastrophic as we're going to see. It's just mind-boggling. And as you try to think about a flood like this, of this magnitude, there's this nagging question that's just begging to be answered. And what is it? It's why. And I know, it's not how. I know this is where we tend to kind of focus. We want to know how it happened, and, and so we, we kind of get stuck there wanting to defend the event. And, and yet that's not what Moses is doing here. He doesn't... He's not going to give us all of the how. He's going, his point is the why. And so we want, we, 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 we're, we're asking the question, why, why would God do such a thing? We, we know the flood was a judgment on sin, but what could the people of the pre-flood world have done that was so horrendous that God made this decision to wipe everybody out? And with the exception of Noah and his family, to, to, to just do a, a clean... A reset of the whole whole planet. I was going to say control alt delete. That was what was. But I realized that most of you have no idea what that even means. The young people. Um, so so this is that's the one question that we kind of go to, and that and so we, we we first we get stalled out at how, and then we get stalled out at why. Why would God do something like that? Here's the bigger question, and the more pressing one is why were any spared? Why, why did God show favor to Noah? Why did He show him grace? Why were eight people allowed to live? This is the question that should just boggle our minds. Why was anybody allowed to live? 
So, in order to answer that question in particular, and, and, and these why questions, let, let's start. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 24, real quick. I, we're going to hold your place in Genesis 6 and turn over to Matthew 24. Because this is, the, 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 the flood is referenced in multiple places in the New Testament. We're going to see some of those this morning. But I want to start looking at the words of Jesus. This passage is part of a longer section in Matthew's Gospel called the Olivet Discourse. This was this private teaching moment that Jesus had with his disciples on the Mount of Olives a couple of days before he was going to be crucified. And so here he is with his disciples and the subject of this is Jesus returned to earth at the end of the age. So he's going to come back. And so in order to help them understand this future event, Jesus is drawing this this fascinating comparison with the days of Noah. And so he tells his disciples, and understanding this past event is going to help them understand uh, future events. And so he says, study the days of Noah, because understanding what happened in those days is going to help you understand what's going to happen at the end of the age. So he gives this, uh, his words here, it gives this, this biblical account of the flood that we're going to begin to see um, pressing relevance to us. He's, and, and so don't miss these words that we're going to be studying in Genesis as fiction or as irrelevant or this is silly. Why are, we, why are we even bothering with this? No, it is very relevant. Jesus makes that case. Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so the the spiritual conditions of the pre-flood world, they're going to be replicated in the days before Christ's return. And what do we find when we look at the world in the days of Noah? This is business as usual. This is what Jesus says. They're, They're eating and drinking. Normal life, marrying, giving in marriage, just nothing wrong with that. Just normal activities of human life. Now we're going to see this picture colored out in Genesis 6 and, and, the, and, and the utter wickedness of man. But, but the kind of the picture and what Jesus is, is setting up is, is they were living normal life. They, they, they apparently gave no attention to crazy old Noah and what he was building in his backyard uh, they, they, they just, they, they thought he was a little kooky, perhaps, kind of the local wacko, and they laughed at his oddities. And, and, and as he warned of imminent judgment, they paid him no attention whatsoever. But the last day came when Noah entered the ark, the rains came down and the floods came up and all of that. And so life had been business as usual for these people. And until the flood came violently, Jesus says, until it came, swept them away, they were unaware. They did not know, some of your translations may say. That's, a, that's quite a damning indictment. They were, they were unaware. It was this age of progress that we've been looking at in Genesis 4 and 5, but they did not know. It was an age of enlightenment, but they were unaware. It was an age of art and literature and, 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 and music, but they, they were unaware. An age of technology, but they were unaware. An age of military might, they were unaware. They knew so much, but understood so little. 
One commentator says it this way, they knew more and more about less and less until they knew everything about nothing and nothing about what really mattered. This is, reminds me of Romans one twenty two. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They had, they had no thought of God. No, no place for God. No, and, until it's too late. And then the flood came and took them all away. So, what I want us to see in these eight verses in Genesis 6 is just these two enormous peaks that rise above the horizon in this passage. There is one giant peak, but that giant peak is dwarfed by an even greater peak. And so there's, there's this smaller peak, massive as it is, of just the enormity of sin, the greatness of sin. And it's on full display here in Romans 6, or in Genesis 6, excuse me. And then there's this larger peak, though, that dwarfs even that, and it's the enormity of God's grace. And we're going to see both here on display. So great sin, greater grace. Let's look at those together. Let's first, let's see the, this great sin. As we saw in Genesis 3 and 4, and we've been looking at this in our study so far since the fall, there's just been this rapid spiritual degeneration since that first sin. So once sin entered the human bloodstream, as it were, it has quickly spread and it's just dominated humanity. And so you just see this progression, this, this, this free fall. At first, it was the serpent deceiving Eve into sinning. So kind of talking her into sin. And then the, the next person to sin, you have Adam. And he's willfully sinning. He's not deceived. But he just sins fully engaged with his will. Then you get to Cain, and God can't talk Cain out of sinning. And then we saw... A couple weeks ago, you have Lemech who's boasting about a sin. So this is just in very short order, this, this rapid degeneration in humanity. And so with the passing of, this, of these generations, the, the, the whole world has just become this cesspool of sin. Things have become so evil that, that we're going to see God just decides to start all over. Control, alt, delete. Look it up. Google it. <laughs> Um, so we see the, the greatness of sin. We see it, we're going to see it in this passage, both in what man does and the way that it's described and man's sin is described, and also in how God responds. I was thinking about this in, in parenting. You can, you can, there's a, there, we, we know that not all, um, all disobedience is the same. Uh, it's all bad and, and, and it all needs to be punished. But we understand there are, there are gradations in, in disobedience within a home. You know, a two-year-old who takes an extra goldfish or something like that off the counter. All right, that's different than the, uh, than the 14-year-old who takes the car for a joyride uh, through town. So, so the, there, are, there, are these, there are these distinctions. Some of you did that, and it's okay. But... Um, so some is worse than others. And we might, we can tell the degree of disobedience by a couple of things. One, by just a description of what the kid did. I mean, I did that. I mean, the goldfish, okay, that's not as bad as stealing the keys to the car. Uh, that kind of thing. We can also tell the degrees by how the parent responds. <laughs> so, depending on the parent's response, we might say, you know, we don't even know what to do. That kid must have done something really, really bad. You know, judging by how they were punished and how many months it's been since we've seen them because they've been grounded. Um, 
so now, but here's the deal. With human parents, we, our, our reaction isn't a reliable guide to the actual severity of sin, is it? Because what? We're inconsistent. We get irritable. We're irrational beings. We're sinners. Parents can overreact. Parents are affected by circumstances and pressures in their life, and so they, they don't discipline well. And, and so that reaction of the parents may not be an accurate uh, uh, gauge of, of the severity of the sin. Not so with God. Not so with God. He doesn't get exasperated. He, he, he doesn't get tired and grumpy because he's had a hard day at work or because he was woken up from his nap. Not, not like us. He, he doesn't hold these kind of grudges even against his children. So it's appropriate, we're going to see, to look at God's response to, to sin in order to understand the heinousness of sin. So that's, as we see the, 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 how great sin is in, this, in these first seven verses, we're, we're going to see it both as the way it's described and what man does, and also what God, how God's responding to it. So that, we'll look at those, and it'll be kind of, they'll, they'll be passing it back and forth. First, first way that we see the greatness of sin is that marriage is demonized. Marriage is demonized. Look at verse 1 again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now this is probably the most debated passage in all of Genesis. <laughs> and it's not because it is the implication, the theological implications or the practical implications are so, uh, so great that, that you, know, we, we, you put in totally different theological camps depending on how you interpret that. It's, no, it's just difficult to understand what's being... What's, what, what he's talking about here. So who are these sons of God and who are marrying and, the, and who are seeing these daughters of men? There's two main interpretations. There are others, but these are the two primary interpretations and most hold to one of these two. So I'm going to just give them to you quickly. One, this, is, this may be talking about intermarriage between what we would say is believers and unbelievers. Uh, it's a little bit of a trite modern rendering, but that's how it tends to be applied anyway. So the sons of God, they're the line of Seth that we looked at in Genesis 5, that, that godly line of Seth. And, and the daughters of man, they represent the, the women from the ungodly line of Cain, the end of Genesis chapter 4. And so men from Seth's line saw these beautiful babes from Cain's line and, and they took as their wives, perhaps multiple wives, any they chose. Now listen, whatever interpretation you take, this is a sad, dark statement, isn't it? Just the wording of this, and, and don't miss that. The women seen as objects to be taken and possessed. And so, so according to this interpretation, the, the judgment then comes because of this widespread spiritual contamination that comes from this, this deliberate um, compromise. And so the, the, the view, and, and this view seems, it makes sense given the immediate context. We saw this in Genesis 4 and 5, these, chap, these genealogies that are kind of put right together. And so I, this is the strength of this interpretation. So that's one. I'll talk about some challenges in a moment. Second interpretation is that the sons of God, they refer to angels who rebelled against God, so demons, who, in, who then inhabited human bodies, demon possession, and married uh, 
daughters of married, married other women. Um, now on the surface, uh, unless you're familiar with this, uh, this passage and the issues here, that probably sounds rather bizarre and maybe even ridiculous to our 21st century Western ears. Uh, an interpretation like that. It sounds like something out of a fantasy novel. I was listening to Howard and Patrick talking about uh, Lord of the Rings stuff here before uh, before the service, and uh, it sounds kind of like in that realm <laughs> when you hear these demons marrying uh, women, that kind of a thing. But this is this does have strong support, and I'll just go and say this is my understanding of this passage. Let me give you some reasons why I think this is what's being said. One, the term sons of God in the Old Testament is always used in reference to angels, unless this passage is an exception. So, it, so the normal, the plain meaning of this expression would, would always be ind- indicative of angels, good or bad. Second, this interpretation does fit with the context of Genesis 3.15. The promise, it's kind of the anchor of this whole s- section, which it's, it's emphasizing Satan's long war, as it were, against the seed of the woman and, and, and who is going to eventually produce the Messiah who is going to crush his head. And so what better way to destroy the coming Messiah than to, than to corrupt the human race through this introduction of this demonism into humanity. Third, this is the oldest interpretation by far. Um, this doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right one, so age doesn't always mean it's correct, but generally the, it, it's, a, it's good to be closer to the original. And so the earliest Jewish exegetes, they held this view, they wrote about this view, and so from the earliest Jewish writings, this is what they're, they're, um, how they understand this passage in Genesis 6. And there's, there's many evidences of this. Josephus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, even the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, has notes about the interpretation of this. Uh, this is how the earliest church fathers interpreted Genesis 6. Um, and then last... This interpretation makes sense in light of a few New Testament passages. Now, I'll admit, those passages are rather difficult to interpret as well. And we've interpreted two of them recently when we went first and second Peter. But uh, turn to first Peter real quickly. We're just going to read these passages. First Peter chapter 3 in verse 19. And so the, this passage, it's alluding to Christ preaching upon his death. Uh, verse 19, to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now again, it's not, that, that's a challenging passage to interpret as well. But spirits generally refer to those supernatural beings in scripture. And here it seems to be these fallen angels. Uh, turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. And just a few pages, Second Peter 2. Verse 4, 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought them, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And then one other passage, just turn over a few more pages, the book of Jude, verses 6 and 7. Jude, verses 6 and 7, and then I'll make a couple summary statements. Jude, verse 6. 
And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so I just, you put these passages together, and I'm not saying that this is, is 100% clear, but there's this, there's this connection between fallen angels and Noah and the flood through these passages. So you put it all together. I think what we have in Genesis 6, 1 to 2 here is these, these demonized men marrying the daughters of women, uh, daughters of other men. Uh, for, so for this hideous sin, the angels, they're sent to the pit of darkness and the existing civilization is wiped off of, wiped out in the great flood minus Noah and his family. Now, having said all that, I agree, this is very difficult to understand what's going on, and I would be lying if I said I'm 100% sure that this is the best interpretation. I, this is one of those places where you wish Moses had added a few footnotes, and, uh, and, and it would be great to, great to know. But ma- many, many notable Bible interpreters take uh, the other view, but it's not an issue on the level of the Trinity or the deity of Christ or anything like that. I, I just I will simply share why I take the second view. But if that interpretation, if it sounds a little crazy and a little ridiculous, I, I, want, to hear, hear, I want to just read a quote from uh, an Old Testament scholar, Gordon Wenham. He says this, If the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the Creator would, would unite Himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. So I say we, we have to acknowledge that there is that what God does and, and, and what happens in the spiritual realm is far greater than we possibly realize. Now, okay, all of that said, this is a difficult passage, I know, and I wanted to, I think like we had to say something about that, but I don't want you to get sidetracked from the main thing here. And, and the main thing is not details and demons and it's not that. Uh, here's the big thing. Here's the important thing to see. And this is why this is given to us. Man is beyond self-help. He is beyond self-help. Sin and Satan are in the driver's seat. And man cannot rescue himself. He cannot save himself. There's no self-salvation plan that can possibly turn this thing around. You can't reverse engineer this thing back to paradise. Man can't do that. Man can't DIY remodel uh, the the world and the way things are and and put things back together and restore it back to its pristine condition. No! Man, Man has lost it. If there's any hope, it's going to have to come from the outside. That's what this is really showing. It's, it's, it's beyond. And, and sin has made it that way. We are beyond the ability to save, to help ourselves. Second way that we see the greatness of sin is, is that God's patience is nullified. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, it's no shock that God's not going to allow this demonic immorality to go on and on and on. God's patient, but, but we, we say judgment deferred is not judgment denied. 
He, and so it's, it's, he's going, to, he's going to, to, to judge. And so the word translated abide or strive, it might say in your translations, it, it also means to protect. This, is a, this verse, is, it's both a warning and it's a, it's a promise of grace. So there are, there are a couple of different ways. Again, there's interpretive challenges all through these verses here. And so, again, not a big deal, but there's, you can interpret this 120 years to mean this is man's new lifespan. We looked, we looked at those long ages, 800, 900 years last week in Genesis 5. And so this could be that God's saying, no longer. And you're gonna, 120 years, that's it. Um, it could be that. It could mean the years remaining before the flood. And so there's this, this, this time period that God has given. Either way, I, I think the point is the same. But God has graciously been protecting man uh, from self-destruction. Judgment has been delayed. At some point, though, man's going to be left to his own devices and judgment is, going to be, is not going to be denied. So you can write over this verse, Romans chapter 1 been looking at that passage this week and I see these parallels because the, the message here is the same. When, when men rebel against God, sooner or later God gives them up. He gives them up to the face the consequences of their own sin. He's not going to protect us from ourselves forever. Sooner or later, judgment day arrives and if we're not, if we're not sheltered in the grace of God that's available in Christ, we, we have to face the music of judgment. So in this case, that uh, I believe it meant that in 120 years, a flood was going to come and wipe them out. Until then, though, God's grace is extended by giving people more time to turn to the Lord. Now, again, you, you, we can turn to the New Testament and see this is exactly how the New Testament uh, looks back on this event. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. We, there, if we look at that passage and we see that the seeming delay in, in God's judgment, it's not because He's yawning at sin like, ah, it's not a big deal. It's okay. That's not it. It's because God is patient. And He's postponing judgment to give people more time to repent, to turn to Him. But God's patience won't last forever. Listen, dear friend, if if you think that God doesn't see you, He doesn't care about you, perhaps that He doesn't even exist... You will one day be surprised by the sudden judgment of God. That's what Peter is writing about. Just as they were in Noah's day. That's what Jesus warns about in Matthew 24. So God's patience is going to come to an end. Third, you see violence idolized in this passage. Verse 4. Why don't we jump into another challenging interpretation. The Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So I, this seems to be a, sort of a parenthetical sentence in this passage. And, and, and as you read it, I think that's the best way to, to understand this. It's, its purpose isn't crystal clear, though it, I think it's contributing to this picture of this depraved world. And so these Nephilim, we have a mention here of these mysterious people. We don't know exactly who they were. Um, apparently, the first hearers or readers of this, of the book of Genesis, the Moses in Moses' day, they would, have, they would have known about the Nephilim. They were, and so I think Moses is explaining those ones that you've heard about, this is, this is them, this is when they were living. And so he's probably... 
He's probably uh, letting them know that this is a time in history. But apparently these were these mighty warriors who just contributed to the, to the violence that was on the earth at this time. I, I think we can say that much. And so it may be that these Nephilim are the offspring of these demonized marriages that we, if we understand that in verses 1 and 2 that way. But even that's not even really clear. Um, there are older translations that translate this. Some of you may have translations that just translate this giants. Um, and that's because of a ref, the, other, the only other reference to the Nephilim in Numbers 13.33. talks about the Israelites felt like they were grasshoppers before these, these Nephilim. And so we don't know their height. <laughs> but we, what, what does seem to be clear is these, these mighty men of old, these men of renown, they were men of violence. And, and so they were wickedly violent, but they were also highly regarded. They, they, they were apparently like the idols and celebrities of the culture in that day. Charismatic and powerful, yet wicked and corrupt. Underneath that shell of renown and popularity, there was, there was the, they were just ravenous wolves filled with this corruption and violence and hatred and perversion. All kinds of evil. And these, these men filled the earth in the days before the flood. And so we can, we can see that this, this is not, this resurfaces in, in throughout humanity, that in, in other cultures around the world and in, in throughout history and even in our own day. I mean, we, we can see how people can be propped up and idolized for violence. Heroes in our culture are often very violent and perverse men. Men of renown. And so there are signs of this residual demonization. Uh, this, the, the defeated but still active serpent who's trying to crush the head, uh, or to, uh, the, uh, who's trying to destroy the offspring of the seed of the woman. And, and so still warring against Christ, even though he's been defeated, and warring against those who are in him, us. And so there are, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6. There are, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and, and, and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so, but I would just say this is evidence of that, even in our own day. But violence is, is idolized. Fourth, this depravity, it just permeates everything. Verse 5. Listen to this statement. The Lord... Saw. Just stop there. Remember, this was the refrain that we heard over and over again in Genesis 1. God saw that it was good. Everything that He made. It was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was very good. Now, though, by Genesis 6, God looks out on the earth and He sees creation turned into this foul cesspool of sin. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's probably not a more sweeping statement in, in Scripture on the pervasiveness of sin. It spreads throughout the whole earth resulting in this worldwide corruption and it, and it completely and totally corrupts every person that it infects. And so here's mankind apart from God. This is as God, as God sees it, apart from His grace. This is who we are, brothers and sisters, apart from God's sovereign grace. 
It's hard to conceive of a, of a more emphatic statement on the wickedness of the human heart. Look at those words, these strong words. Every, only, continually. I mean, those are words that drive the greatness of sin home to us. And so you see several things about the sin. It's, it's internal. It's not just things we do or things we say or mistakes we make. No, it's, it's a matter of, of the heart first and foremost. It's, it's the thoughts of his heart. It's also pervasive. It touches every part of our existence, every intention of the thoughts of his heart. And it's continual. It consumes man. It controls him. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, con- was only evil continually. Now again, this, this, this is a description of pre-flood humanity, but that's not all it is. This is us apart from the Lord's grace. Don't look at Genesis 6-5 like you're looking at some, some uh, exhibit in a museum. And so you think, wow, those people were terrible. I mean, you could go to a Holocaust museum and say, man, how could those people do that? Or civil rights museum. How could you enslave people? How could you treat African Americans that way? That's crazy. Those wicked people. This is how we want to do this. But see this passage as a mirror. This is who I am. Apart from God's sovereign grace reaching in, in, in into me. I mean, the flood is going to change the world dramatically, but it doesn't change the human heart. And, and how do we know that? We, we see it in the context of Genesis itself. Genesis chapter 8, look over verse 20 and 21. I mean, this is after the flood. What does God have to say about the human heart after the world has been wiped out and Noah and his family are the only ones who remain? And so, first thing Noah does when he's back on dry ground and he builds this altar and he, and he makes a sacrifice to God. God, in, in, in verse 20, says he's pleased with the aroma of that sacrifice in verse 21. This, what does God say about man's heart even after the flood? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I mean, Noah's, Noah and his family, they're not saved because they were the sinless ones. Like God was going to preserve now through Adam and, or through Noah and his family. Now these are the righteous ones. These are the ones who are going to, so sin won't continue to multiply. No! They brought that sin. They brought that. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. They brought that nature onto the ark with him. And it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation to us. No matter what we try to convince ourselves or convince others about the condition of our hearts, God God knows they are naturally corrupted and controlled by sin. The, The intention of man's heart is evil. Even the good things that people do it's stained by the dirt of our own sinful self-interest even our good deeds are but filthy rags in the sight of God we're told that's not a popular statement today is it it may not be it may not be popular with your ears right now uh, we hear all the time that people are basically good and they're and they're generally good the, the bad that people do is only the result of external uh, influences, their family, their culture, the, uh, the society, and things that are imposed on them, circumstances they've had to walk through. That's, that's why people do bad things. But people are basically good. And that's, but the truth is, we are great, thoroughly sinful sinners. 
Deep down, we know it. Our hearts, by nature, are more wicked than we can possibly imagine. I mean, even as believers, we are positionally righteous in Christ. And we are being made righteous in Christ and through sanctification. But we don't know the half of our sin, brothers and sisters. And the more we go on in the, in the faith, the more we realize how indeed sinful we are and how the only, the only uh, hope for us is God's grace and His grace alone. We are so sinful. The last way we see the greatness of sin here is, is in the judgment that's promised. Again, we see, we see God the Father's reaction. And his reaction is one we can gauge the severity of sin by. Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now just think about those phrases. Lord regretted. He was grieved to his heart. He was sorry. Now, uh, there's a whole other sermon series that you could preach on this passage and a few others like this in Scripture where the Lord seemed to change his mind or he regretted. I, but I just, what I want, I think this is showing, is God's grief is a sign of his great love. He, he's not a robot. He's not some unfeeling God in heaven who just kind of set the world in motion and then he, he just watches with apathetic disinterest as, as the men and women just destroy themselves in their sin. No, his heart breaks over the sin that covers the earth. He weeps over broken homes. He weeps over, weeps over broken promises. He weeps over broken lives. He weeps over suffering children. He weeps over the wreckage that, that human sin has caused on earth and has turned it into this massive landfill of pain and evil and suffering and sadness and shame and guilt. He, he grieves. And this is this, this, this description of, of, of this grief of God. It's, it's expressing this intense mixture of both rage and anguish. That's the blend. So what does he do? He decides, in a sense, to unpopulate the earth. And just think, again, we're going to talk about the flood in a couple weeks, but just think about what this meant. I mean, whole cities destroyed. I mean, a family in their house violently wiped out. Whole villages gone. Men, women, children vanishing beneath those violent waves. Whole earth under these waters of judgment. Nothing like it had happened before. Nothing like it has happened since. It's this catastrophic judgment enveloped the whole globe and washed away every vestige of human civilization. I mean, there's, there, there are no half measures when it comes to God dealing with sin. There are none. But listen, just as there are no half measures when it comes to God executing judgment, there are also no half measures when it comes to Him affecting salvation. 
Sin is great, but grace is greater. So we've stood at the base of this massive peak that we call sin, and and we've it's bigger than we imagined, I, I think. And the more we the more we examine it, the more we look at it, the more we walk around it, the closer we get, that we realize it's enormous. But as we walk around that peak of sin, we realize there is a much greater peak that towers over and dwarfs sin, and that is the Lord's grace. And so that's what I want us to end, just in verse 8, is greater grace. Sin is great, grace is greater. Verse 8, it's adversative right there at the beginning, but, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah is a wretch just like the rest of mankind in his day. And his family. Noah is not saved because of his own righteousness. He's saved by grace. A favor. Left to himself, he would have perished like the rest of mankind. He, he deserved death. He earned death by his sin. But he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor is our Word for grace is the first mention of grace in the Bible. And it's significant, therefore. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This means, again, undeserved favor. It's describing the blessing that God gives to those who don't deserve it. It's, It's contrary to merit favor. That's grace. In other words, don't read this verse and think, Noah was a really good man. A righteous man. And because he obeyed God, he earned God's favor and he earned eight tickets for he and his family on the ark. And we've heard stories of this taught like that, haven't we? Be like Noah. Stand strong in your culture like Noah. Like that's the point. That's not it. That, that, that Noah didn't earn anything by his righteousness. That's impossible. It doesn't happen that way. Noah, the grace was given to him the same way that it's given to people today. Grace is a gift or it's not grace. Instead of saying Noah found grace, we could say grace found Noah. Grace found him, saved him and his entire family. Those members. So this isn't about one man who was good enough to catch God's attention, to get his eye and to earn God's favor and therefore... He got to be spared and therefore all of humanity wasn't wiped out because God found righteous Noah. That's not it. This is about a gracious, promise-keeping God who will make sure that the seed of the woman is preserved who will one day destroy the head of the serpent. God didn't wipe everybody out. He isn't going to completely start over from scratch. He's going to keep the promise that He made to Eve alive. In the judgment on the serpent. Now I realize this is hard for us. Grace is hard for us, isn't it? It's hard to grasp. Uh, we, we talk about it all the time, but our understanding of it can be kind of fuzzy and squishy and, 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 and just sort of nebulous. But we can begin to, to view it like it's God's boost to us, to give us a little extra help. That's not grace. We, we have to see this grace against this dark backdrop of, of the enormity of our sin. Every thought, continually evil. This is everybody. And so remember, we're, we are by nature, we're beyond self-help. We cannot save ourselves. We don't just need a little boost. We are, we are hopeless 
Unless we're rescued. Our inclination though, it's, this is why we struggle with grace. Because our inclination is not to trust uh, someone else to undo what we have done. And so we, our inclination is to trust our own ability to, to fix what we've done. That's the, way we, that's the way we tend to go. We think, well, I got myself into this. I'm going to get myself out. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. So it's hard for us to believe that grace, it, it can only be found. It can only be received, not earned or deserved. Grace is hard to grasp. And we won't fully grasp it in this life. We, this is a perennial challenge. And, the, and this, is why, this is why we gather together, why the Lord calls us to remember Christ together uh, over and over and over again. It's to continue to come back and say, it's you, it's you, it's you. It's your grace. We always have to be, as Paul says, growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's, it's God coming to our rescue when we're trapped in sin, facing death, and with no hope of self-rescue. And that's the picture. That's the picture that, that's being painted for humanity. They are beyond rescue, self-rescue. The only hope of humanity being saved is for God intervening. And he does that very thing. That's what verse 8 is. It's God coming from the outside and showing favor, showing grace to Noah for his own sake and for our good. Let me illustrate it this way, uh, and then we'll be done. Imagine you're a coal miner in Pennsylvania or wherever, some other mining community, but you're, you're a coal miner, and today, this afternoon, you're going to go down into that coal mine. You're going to go 240 feet down into the earth uh, to work. And while you're down there, by accident, one of the, one of the men that's drilling down there, the, the, the drill pierces through the wall of an abandoned shaft that's nearby, and water begins to flood the shaft that you're in. Uh, millions of gallons of water are rushing towards you. And so you quickly, with your fellow miner uh, buddies, you know, the six or eight of you that are working down there together, start running for safety. And, and, but it's clear, you, there's no way you're going to make it, out of the, make it to that mine entrance. You don't have time. And so in desperation, you start clambering over the rocks, trying to find any kind of, any kind of space where there could be some air that's, some kind of air pocket as that water begins to rise around you. And so finally you find a tiny space with some air and there you and your friends huddle together. It's dark, it's cold, um, and as the waters continue to rise, you, you, you wonder how long you can survive. And so in that, in that place, I'm claustrophobic, so I'm starting to sweat up here already. But, but there slowly the truth really starts to settle in on you. You're 240 feet underground. There's no way out. You can do nothing to save yourself. You can't swim out from there. You can't dig through the rock to get to the surface. You're trapped in that darkness. If somebody does not come from above to your rescue, you will die there. But what? That's what happens. Afar above, rescue workers 
are planning. They're, they're working and, they're, and, they're, and they begin drilling an air hole and they start, they, they, they reach you with that air and, they, and they, they can send hot air down there to keep you warm and to keep the water uh, uh, suppressed. And so, and unknown to you, there's hundreds of people above working to rescue you, to dig. And so they're, 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 they're digging this rescue shaft to get you out and finally they break through. And the capsule is lowered and you are lifted to safety. We've seen some of these mine rescues on television and it's a joyous thing. When you are trapped, they come to you. When you could do nothing, they rescued you. When your life was nearly gone, they dug through and found you. Someone far above came for you and you were saved. That's the grace of God. That's it. We were, we were trapped in this great darkness of our sin and someone came from above, from heaven, to rescue us. His name is Jesus. And so he left the comforts and glories of heaven and, and, and to dig through the layers of sin and guilt all around us that, 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 to, to set us free. He knew where we were. He knew where we were trapped. He came to us in our darkness. Shine the light of freedom on us. The waters of judgment rising around us. Nothing we could do to help ourselves. If it wasn't for somebody coming from above, we could not be delivered. But someone came and he set us free. That's the grace of God. There's great sin. There's great hopelessness. Impossibility of self-salvation. But there is greater grace. And God, God is pointing to that right here in verse 8. You're, it's, it's hopeless, it's futile apart from me, but I am in this. My grace I've given to Noah, to his family. Not because he deserves it, not because he earned it, but because I'm faithful to keep my promise. There, there's a couple, we, we don't have time to elaborate on these. Let me just state them. I, I was just thinking of a couple ways I think this really shines through, this grace really shines through in the context of this passage. One, is that grace is available in the darkest hours. Again, I say that given the context of, of, of where we've, what we've seen and the, the depravity that was growing and the gener- degeneration that was happening in the world at this time. And so even though the world was rushing headlong into judgment, Noah found grace. There's, there's, there's never a pit of sin so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. And so there, there, don't say I'm too bad of a sinner to ever be saved. God could never forgive me for what I've done. My husband, my unbelieving husband, there's no hope that he can, can be saved. Don't, don't, don't. Where there is life and breath, there's hope. His grace is greater than our sin. And so if you, if you don't know the Lord, seek Him while He may be found. Come to Him, trust Him, turn to Him. Just cling to Christ and as your only hope. And you will find abundant grace in Christ. Second thing I was just thinking, and again, we've already said this, so I'll just state it. Grace is the only means of escape. There's not, a, there's not another. It's like there's, the, there's a different way or there's the grace way. No, the grace is the only way. You're not going to be able to dig yourself out of the mine. You're not going to be able to swim to safety. You're, you don't have the lung capacity for it. You can't do it. This is the only way. Um, but it is a sufficient way. And it is the way. One final word and we're done. Uh, I began the sermon noting the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. And so as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when Jesus returns. 
You want to know what the future looks like? Look to the past. That, that, that's the point. So what were the, what were the marks of the days of Noah? This is what Jesus is really getting at. They, they were completely unprepared for coming judgment. There was widespread moral perversion. There was satanic, demonic activity. And we get this from Genesis 6. There's shocking failure of leaders that we thought we could trust in. There's rejection of God's authority in the name of freedom. And Jesus is saying, so it was, so shall it be. We could say, so it was, so it is. People today are still ignoring and rejecting the one pardon for sin that God has provided. In that day it was the ark. For us, Christ is, is, is our refuge. He's our ark. So we trust, we, we cling to Christ. He's our only hope. So, so, it, so it was, so it is. But we don't have to despair. We can, we can stand strong. We can point to Christ. Let me just say, I, 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 was, I heard this encouragement, this exhortation at a conference I was at recently, and I've been thinking a lot about it. And I think this is a good word for our church. We, we're, going, we're about to go in, and it's, I know the next election cycle is already picking up steam and the presidential election in, in 2020 and and so we're that's already you know, it's already building and if you're like me it's easy to dread that we've we've went through this four years ago and we've and 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 it's just it's so easy to just be so discouraged and to dread it but what if we say well this is a wonderful opportunity there's <laughs> a wonderful opportunity for us not to be given to fear not to be given to name-calling and divisiveness and, and, and anger, but, to, but to, 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 to cling to Christ and to be full of hope and joy and confidence in the Lord. These are, these are wonderful opportunities, wonderful time to be alive and to know the Lord. Without the Lord, yes, we would despair. But we as a church, we have this opportunity to, 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 to be light and to not, not to be given over to those things. And so... I, I, I encourage us to think of that regardless of, of, of uh, whether this generation is the one that's privileged to see Christ return, going back to Matthew 24 or not, let's be busy about spreading this truth that yes, sin is great, but Jesus and His grace are greater and we can point people to Him and we can trust in that truth. It's not just that they, they that need that. We need to constantly remind ourselves of that Reality, Not minimizing sin. No, it's greater than we imagine. But God's grace is even greater still. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we pray. I pray that we would, as a church, Father, we would be busy about spreading that message, Father, that this passage would be a reminder to us that our unbelieving friends and family members and neighbors, uh, Muslims in this community and, and around the world, we would be, uh, that they may be going about life, business as usual, clueless about coming judgment and they need grace and that grace is available to them in Christ. So may we be quick to proclaim that message. And Father, help us as, as we, um, we, we deal with shame. We, we realize our sin, but, but the, the answer to that is not to minimize our sin and not to play it down. It's, it's to acknowledge it, but yet it's to, it's to play up grace. Is to see, to make more of what you have done for us in Christ. And so as we see our sin, may we see that your grace is even greater. That Jesus, you are, you are stronger than sin. Um, we, we pray in Jesus' name.
So let's sing. We're going to sing of this love that didn't, that didn't wait for us to come to Him, but He came for us.